You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. I am not always the best listener. And I actually think listening is one of the most difficult tasks we as humans have to do on a regular basis. It's really hard because we're always being inundated by all sorts of different outer noise or inner voices, right? We have dialogue going on in our heads and our hearts, our emotions and our thoughts that can consume our minds and prevent us from actually hearing someone uh, we're speaking with or, or who's speaking to us. I was reminded of this just a couple weeks ago. Emily and I, uh, my wife Emily, those of you that don't already know Emily, she's a nurse at Mayo Clinic and she was just getting home from the hospital after a long day. And she goes through a lot in the eight hours that she's there. She's interacting with doctors and coworkers and patients. And uh, she always has stories that she wants to fill me in on. Sometimes filled with joy, sometimes really heavy. And I often want to listen, but I have stuff from my day that I've been going through as well, right? I have things I've been reading that I want to share with Emily. I've had conversations with neighbors or uh, other friends close to me, people in this community. I've been preparing lecture content and all this stuff has filled my mind. And that's just work stuff, right? We've also got errands we have to run and texts we want to respond to and weekend plans we have to think about. And so when we try to listen to each other about our days, we're bringing in all of this extra stuff that can prevent us from actually hearing the other person. And a couple Thursdays ago, Emily, uh, over dinner, is starting to share about her day with me. And I'm giving all of the nonverbal cues that I'm listening, right? Eye contact, <laughs> nodding. I'm throwing in a few like words every once in a while, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, oh, okay, yeah. But inside, it's a whole different thing going on, right? I've got an inner dialogue that's thinking about my fantasy football league and whether or not I set the right running back on, because Thursday night football is tonight, and if I set the wrong running back, then I might lose this week, and that might keep me from the playoffs, and then I might not win the prize. At the end. Oh, and then I also have that email that I need to respond to, right? That's starred in my inbox, and it's the gas bill, and I know if it gets out of the top, like, 10, then I'm not going to see it, and I'm going to forget, and then we'll... We'll have our gas shut off eventually. And then, oh, I also need to make sure to put that quote from the book that I read into my sermon because I need to make sure to include that. And I've got lecture content. I need. All of that stuff is going through my mind as Emily is sharing with me about her day. And I failed to listen. And it became clear to me when Emily all of a sudden asked me a question. Because then she's involving me in what she's talking about. She's like, do you think I should? And I was like, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, you should, Right? And now I've fully endorsed and proved something. I have no idea what it is, right? I've failed to listen, and now it's reared its ugly head in our relationship. Listening is really difficult, especially when we carry all of this extra stuff that can get in the way. And there's a form of teaching that Jesus utilizes and that uh, ancient rabbis utilized at that time that helps us listen well. It's called the parable. You guys familiar with parables? Most of us, even if you haven't been raised in the church, most of us are familiar with parables to some level or another, parable of the Good Samaritan, parable of the prodigal son, most of us know those stories. What's interesting is that many of us don't actually grasp fully the purpose of a parable. Most of us think that when you read a parable that Jesus tells, he's giving you this nice, neatly wrapped up conclusion. And so you just pull a moral lesson out of that and implement it in your life and move on with your day. But that's actually not what parables do. Most of the time, parables are more like puzzles or riddles. They don't have neatly wrapped up conclusions. They leave you at the end thinking, what the heck was that saying? What is going on here? Parables are invitations to meditate on meaning more than just in that moment. They're stories that provoke questions 
And so their meaning is not always immediately obvious. It requires lots of contemplation. It requires asking good questions. It requires involving dialogue in order to grasp what a parable is getting at. It's meant to be listened to and participated in. That's the purpose of these stories that Jesus told. And so they show us how to listen. They show us how to hear what Jesus might be saying because they force us to return to them over and over, like a great painting or a movie that you love. You come back to it again and again and notice a new detail, a new shading on this or a new aspect here, a new theme that strikes you at a different point in your life. And the reason we exist as a community here at Midtown, I mentioned it at the start, we say this all the time here, we exist to invite people into a transformative relationship with Jesus because we believe Jesus has the power to do that. And in order to make that happen, in order to have that experienced in our midst and invite others to that, we need to listen to Jesus. We need to be people whose ears and hearts and minds are attuned to the life that he's inviting us into and who are able to participate and integrate that life into our own. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time listening. We're this series, Enduring Questions. We're going to be looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. All of these different stories. And we're going to look at the questions that they provoke in us. Because remember, parables are meant to lead you to respond in some way. You don't just leave it here in this room. You leave this room thinking about it, contemplating it, pondering it. And so because of that, beyond Sunday mornings, we're going to have some other ways to engage these parables. Every Sunday after church, we're going to have a question and response time here at Hope Women's Center. We're going to have some snacks and some drinks and some other things. And so we're going to have some space for all of us to engage some of the questions that came up for us as we listened. Some of the maybe inquiries that we have about what Jesus might mean here or what it might mean in our own lives. Because remember, parables are supposed to involve us, supposed to invite us. We've also built a community group curriculum for your community groups that goes through the entire Gospel of Luke. So you'll be getting this at like every angle. You'll be constantly engaging what Jesus is doing and what he's saying in these stories. This whole series, we want to be people who ask ourselves, do we have ears to hear what Jesus is really saying? Are we really listening to Jesus? So today, I'm going to start us off with, well, a parable. We're going to start this series with a story, and this is actually a parable Jesus tells about why he tells parables. He told a story to explain why he told stories, which is really funny, uh, and it seems like a, a decent enough place to start. So turn with me in the Bible, if you have one, to the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to be reading from chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We're going to have the words up on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of the resources. Now when a great crowd gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow a seed. And as he sowed, some fell on the path and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, let anyone with ears to hear listen. Then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others I speak in parables, so that looking they may not perceive and listening they may not understand. 
Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones on the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe only for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. As for what fell among the thorns, these are the ones who hear. But as they go on, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for that in the good soil, these are the ones who, when they hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patient endurance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're in Luke chapter 8. And Luke chapter 8 implies something. What does Luke chapter 8 imply? Luke chapter 7. What does Luke chapter 7 imply? Luke chapter 6, right? (laughs) 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, all the way down. We are right in the middle of a story here. And it would be disingenuous to start to explain what's going on if we haven't really understood what's come before this, right? You wouldn't open up a book midway through and say, I got it, I know what's happening here. Or a movie, you don't turn it on an hour in and say, I'm gonna fully understand everything, right? You're gonna know there's gonna be confusion. So it's helpful to remember what's been going on through the first seven chapters of Luke when we jump into this passage. And thankfully, Luke gives us a little refresher in uh, verse one here. You may have noticed it. A quick recap of what's been happening. He says, Jesus has been traveling through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what the first seven chapters have been about. The kingdom of God is a, a phrase that's used across multiple gospels. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, but very similar phrasing here. And Jesus understood his ministry to be all about the arrival of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the world. So if we want to understand Jesus, we kind of got to understand the kingdom. Like, that's the point. What did he mean when he said the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is here? Well, many of us, I think, have been raised with a bit of a myth, a bit of a misconception about Jesus's purpose on earth. So what I want to do is help us understand the misconception by showing us what Jesus really meant. And I have a laser pointer to help with it. So this is is our comment. Oh, look at that laser pointer, you guys. This is the common misconception of what we think Jesus came to do, his purpose on earth. So most of us were probably raised with a version of Christianity that said that the earth, old creation, the world, it's broken, right? Something's messed up here, and we are mired in this, and that's why we suffer, that's why we have pain, that's why we have hardship. Uh, The world is not the way that it should be, right? And then Jesus arrives and gives us an escape route to this little place called heaven, or the new creation of the kingdom, right? Those words are used to describe the same sort of reality. And so the point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is to get us out of this place into this place, and we leave the earth behind. And oftentimes, this place has clouds and naked babies and harps and golden streets and milk and honey and all these different pictures, right? That's the, the culture's general understanding of what Jesus came to do. And in some ways, that can be nice. You can think about the afterlife and that sort of thing, but there's one problem with it, the Bible. The Bible is the problem with that story. See, that's not how Jesus understood things, and that's not how the Bible describes heaven and earth. It looks something like this instead. The message of Jesus is about this earth and old creation and world being reunified with heaven. The start of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we get a picture of heaven and earth unified. Humans made to live in right relationship with God, with others, and with the world, and to steward that relationship, to steward those things. 
creatively, to bring flourishing to all things. And then humans decide, you know, we think we can do this better than how God has told us to do it. And so we're going to do it differently. And when they did that, it fractured the the world, the earth and the old creation. And in order to restore it, God doesn't throw it away. Revelation 21 says that the new heavens and the new earth arrive. It's a reunifying, a restoration, not a scrapping of the old creation. And so when God is arriving to fix things, he is going to bring heaven back into earth. And we're sitting here kicking back in the middle of it, experiencing that reality. The point of Jesus's ministry was to reunify heaven and earth. And that's why he said things like repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, near, right? He didn't say repent so you can escape to get somewhere else. He said repent for the kingdom of heaven is here and now. He told us to pray that prayer we all prayed together just a bit ago. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We are wanting the reunifying of these things together. And so Jesus has been walking around in his ministry through the first seven chapters of Luke, proclaiming that that's happening. And that happens when he heals blind people. That happens when he helps lame people walk. That happens when he teaches us about how to participate in that restoration. Everything that Jesus does is saying to the world, hey, there's a way of being human that you've been living in that leads to destruction, that leads to pain and hardship. But there's a way of being human that can restore that. And that way of being human is one that I'm going to live at. And if you trust your life to me, you will have the same sort of power in your life. You will have the same sort of experience. If you entrust yourself to me and you follow me, you'll see the the coming together of heaven and earth again. That will start now and that will carry until, well, time ends. It will carry into eternity. So this is a pretty radical message, right? saying that heaven is in our midst right now in the person of Jesus. And because it's radical, because he's doing all these crazy things, people start following him. Verse four, we learn that there's a crowd here around Jesus, which makes sense. He's been doing a lot of crazy things. And there's different sorts of people in this crowd. We've learned about these people throughout the Gospel of Luke already. And so I want to remind us of who Jesus is speaking to when he tells this story. Uh, Three groups of people. I put them all into categories uh, with C words to start, so they're easy to remember. First of these uh, groups of people that are crowding around Jesus listening are those who are committed. Committed people. We learn about them right away. The 12. The 12 were the disciples who had given everything to follow Jesus. And they were not particularly socially or religiously esteemed people. They were day laborers. They were tax collectors. They were broken sinners. They were not the elite of that time. So Jesus is drawing those people together, and they have committed themselves to Jesus. But Luke also goes out of his way to mention the women here, which I appreciate, because women are often much smarter than men. And how it turns out here in this story is that these women end up being the ones who stick with Jesus the whole way through. When the disciples end up leaving Jesus when he goes to the cross, the women are still there. And so Luke goes out of his way to show you that these women have it pretty well figured out. They're dialed in on following Jesus. And the women he mentions, they're prostitutes, they're widows, they're single women, the lowest rung of the social ladder at that time. The people that Jesus had closest to him were the day laborers and the hookers. Those are the people who were right there with him. The lowest rung, the people you overlook, the people you drive by and don't even notice, those are the people that Jesus builds his kingdom on because they're the ones that recognize they need him. They're the ones that know that God has life in the person of Jesus and that this world is not gonna cut it. People who are down and out in the world are fully aware that the world is failing them. 
They are most fully aware that they need something. And so when they see Jesus, they can say, that's it. That's what I need. I need that life in my life. So that's the first group of people here, the committed ones. We also learn that there's a second group, curious people. They're not quite committed, but they're interested. And they've seen Jesus do some things. They maybe even have experienced some of Jesus' teachings or miracles. And they're like, interesting. So they're following him and they're like, is this guy a magician? Is he a con man? Is he the Messiah? Is he a teacher? What is this man? And so they're following him around and kind of looking, peeking over the shoulder. Not getting too close, but paying attention, wondering what Jesus might be doing. And then the third group of people, these are the cynics. These people are mentioned all throughout the Gospels as well. And these are the people who have already decided who Jesus is. They know that he's not God. They know that he's either scheming people out of his mind or blaspheming. These are the people who, before even getting to Jesus, have already decided they're going to discredit him. And these people are quite the opposite of the committed ones. They're the elites of culture, the religious and social elites in particular. And that makes you think, well, why would they be opposed to Jesus, right? Well, the religious elites are seeing Jesus come around and affirm all of the outsiders, all of those who are maligned in the culture. And that undermines their picture of God because in religious circles at that time, it was believed that God, when he would come, would justify those who had done all the right religious things. If you just kept your life in order, if you did all the right moral and religious things, God would come and justify you. And so the onus was really on you, and you had control over things. As long as you did the right things, then God functionally worked like a vending machine. He'd spit out the thing that you paid for with all of your actions. And so they had that framework of God. They were waiting for God to come and justify them. When Jesus comes and says, actually, the ones I'm going to justify are the ones who know they're far from me and turn to me, the religious elites are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That can't be God. God doesn't work that way. God justifies those who do the right things. God justifies those who have all the religious cards in order. And so they're upset that Jesus is coming. They're looking at Jesus and saying, that can't be God, because the God I know will justify me based on my actions, not be someone who brings grace to those who need it. And the social elites of the day also opposed Jesus, because they heard about this dude claiming to be a king and having a kingdom, which would be a threat to their power. They're a little skeptical of what Jesus might be saying, because if he really is a king and he's really bringing a kingdom, that might undermine the social order at the time. And so the religious and social elites were cynical of Jesus. And he has all of these people, the committed, the curious, and the cynics in front of him right now, this crowd of people. He's got this prime opportunity to clearly express who he is and why he's here. And he tells a story about a farmer. That's what he chooses to do. He could choose to do whatever he wanted. He's got this crowd of people and he chooses to tell a story about a farmer and some seed. And then he closes that story with a rhetorical question. Do you have ears? In this room right now, you guys have ears? Yeah? You have ears? Listen. That's how Jesus ends the story. Do you have ears? Listen. What is he doing, right? What is happening in this story? Why is he giving us this ambiguous story and then saying, hey, listen to that story? Well, let's remember what parables are for. They're meant to invite you in. They're meant to draw you into more questions. They're meant to make you consider their meaning, not flatly give you a nice and neatly wrapped up answer at the end. And that mode of teaching, it turns out, is the best way for us to learn things. We as humans learn best when we are participating in the learning. There's a a famous uh, educational model that's been used for the last 
few decades. It's the result of a bunch of different studies. Those of you who are in education, I see a, a teacher in the back nodding. She might know where I'm going with this. It's called the learning pyramid. You guys heard of this? Yeah. The learning pyramid, it, it categorizes different ways that humans learn. And the worst way out of predominant models that we use is lecturing. Lecturing is often the worst way for us to retain information, which is ironic because in colleges and universities, we predominantly lecture. We just give people information. But what we've learned is that that's not the best way for us to retain information. In fact, you retain 10 times more information when you are involved in a dialogue rather than a lecture. When you are involved in discussion and dialogue and participating, all of a sudden learning sticks for us. That's how we're wired. And so Jesus, when he has the opportunity to teach, does not give a lecture. He gives us a discussion. It's like he knows how we might be able to learn best. It's what great teachers do. And here's what's so brilliant about that. It forces us to respond. People arriving here already have a picture of who God is in their minds, right? And so if Jesus gives them a nice systematic lecture about who God is, they're going to say, okay, that either aligns with mine or it doesn't. Cool, I'm in, I'm out, right? It either justifies those who already think they're right or it uh, negates those who already think they're right and it just creates more division. Jesus here is instead forcing people to say, am I willing to dig further to understand who God is? Am I willing to allow God more and more into my life by responding? And it's brilliant because he reaches every category of person here. Think about the person who arrived who had already disregarded Jesus, who was already ready to reject Jesus. They're going to hear a story and it's just going to confirm what they already believed. They're going to hear this crazy story about a farmer and they'll be like, this dude, clearly not God, probably a little crazy, giving weird stories to people. See, this just confirms what I already thought. It's confirmation bias. Those of us in the room who have seen this played out in our world over the last few years. It's when you decide something in your mind already and any evidence that's presented will only further dig you deeper into your conclusion. That's what this story will do to those who are unwilling to hear. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah. He says, there's going to be people who listen but don't hear. There's going to be people who hear but don't comprehend because they've decided not to. They aren't actually listening. Because if they were, they'd ask questions. If they were, they'd dig deeper into the story, but they're going to disregard it. But those who are curious, those who are committed, those who are interested, this sort of story is going to make them think, huh, you know, I've seen Jesus do things. I've heard Jesus' teachings. I'm interested in him. What could he mean here? What, what, is, what does the farmer represent? What is the soil? What's the seed? How do I understand this better? And that's exactly what happens here. What's the disciples' response? What was the disciples' response? Anybody remember? Right, we don't understand. They ask a question. They're like, oh, cool, Jesus. What? Huh? I don't understand. Help me understand. Which is a perfect example for us of how we ought to follow God and who God is, the God we're following. Friends, Jesus does not expect you to have all the answers when you walk in this room. He does not expect you to have every perfect understanding of him in your life. He expects you to ask questions. He wants you to ask questions because that means you're getting involved. That means you're participating. You're not just ascribing to some intellectual uh, idea. You're participating in the life that God has for you. You're asking good questions. That's why he tells a parable. We don't pay attention to the disciples because they had all the answers. We pay attention to them because we, they knew they didn't. 
they knew that Jesus did, and they were willing to trust that Jesus had the answers. And so if you're in this room, if you're curious, if you're committed, if you're cynical, Jesus is inviting you to ask questions. Jesus is inviting you to participate in this story, to try to more deeply understand who he is and what he's doing in this world. And in fact, putting that response on us is precisely the point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. At every turn possible, Jesus is always putting the ball in the courts of the hearers and the listeners. He's never making the decision for them. He's always giving them agency to respond. He always provokes us to action, always warrants deeper consideration. Think of the story of John the Baptist. You guys remember John the Baptist in the Bible? He was a forerunner of Jesus. He was someone who was anticipating the kingdom of heaven arriving. He looked at Jesus and said, that's it right there. I know the kingdom of heaven is here. And he names it. And because he associates himself with Jesus, people don't like him. He gets arrested. He's about to be killed, executed. And he's starting to get cold feet in prison a little bit. He's like, all right, I'm going to my grave for this Jesus dude. What if he's not it? What if I had it wrong, right? And so he just has some friends in prison. He says, hey, can you just go, just check with Jesus. Can you just get the stamp of approval on this thing? Like, I'm fine to get my head cut off, but I want to make sure I'm getting it cut off for the right reasons. So can you just like go and check with him and and get a confirmation from him? And his friends are like, sure, we'll do that. So they run over to Jesus and Jesus' response to them is, look around. The blind can see. The lame can walk. The poor are given freedom. The oppressed are given justice. You have to decide what you think that is. And when he's doing that, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. So he's kind of giving them a hint, hint, like, hey, the kingdom, when it arrives, does this. Look around you. Is it happening? Is the kingdom of heaven real? You have to decide. The ball's in your court. He does the same thing for Pilate. On the day he's executed, all the way up until his death, Jesus is always putting the ball in their court. Pilate asks, are you a king? Jesus says, you've said so. It's on you, bro. Look around. You have to decide. You have to look at the evidence and decide if you think this is legit or not. If you think the kingdom of heaven is really here in Jesus. And those responses, that's exactly what this parable is talking about. This parable is illustrating for us all the different responses that will come to Jesus's message of the kingdom. He's describing what will happen when it's proclaimed in the world. So let's dig into that story real quick because the responses are, are fascinating and compelling. But first, a question. Why do you put a seed in the ground? Anybody? To grow something, right? So that life might spring up. That's the idea. Jesus tells us in his further explanation here that the seed is the word of God. And we learn throughout a fuller understanding of the New Testament, the word of God is Jesus himself. So Jesus is functionally saying the kingdom of heaven that I am bringing into the world, it is this seed. And it is being cast all over. And it is a little bit wild how generous the seed is cast. In his world, people would have been like, this farmer's being a little reckless. Like he's just throwing seed out to every soil. That would be odd to the audience. Farmers usually were very precise when they did this. And God shows up, apparently, in this story and is just slinging seed everywhere. He's saying, put the kingdom of God everywhere in the world. And when that happens, there's different receptions. There's different responses. The first one we get is the seed that's on the path doesn't really take root. It's not able to get into the soil. It gets trampled upon and birds come and take it away. This sort of person is the one who's indifferent to the message of Jesus, who doesn't even really allow it to sink in. It just kind of bounces off them, right? The cynics here, they've already decided. And so they hear the message of Jesus. They're like, cool, get it. I'm good. I'm set. Like I, 
I think my life is pretty decent. I think I'm a pretty good person. And I don't really know that all that much is broken. I think I'm good where I'm at. So thanks, but no thanks. The kingdom, it's a little extreme. It's a little much for me. You're telling me to change a whole bunch of things about my life and I think my life's pretty good. So I'm sad. This this person is functionally saying that there's not enough wrong in the world to warrant something beyond themselves to fix it. They're either saying that their life is good enough as it is or if it is wrong, that they can fix it or some other entity can fix it outside of Jesus. They can resolve the problems of that broken world on their own. They don't see Jesus being the one who can fix it. And Jesus tells us there's a spiritual component to this as well. He says that the devil comes and scoops up the seed. That's what the bird represents. And the devil is just the antagonistic force to Jesus all throughout uh, the New Testament. The devil is the one who is working against the kingdom of heaven. And so the devil will convince people that things aren't really all that bad. Or if they are bad, you can kind of fix it on your own. You've got it figured out. You don't really need this whole new framework to fix the broken world around you. And to that person, Jesus asks, do you have ears? Are you listening? There's a second person that Jesus mentions here. This is the person uh, who's represented by the rocky ground, the seed that's cast into rocky ground. This person, they hear and receive the good news of Jesus, and they're hyped about it at first. They love the idea that something outside of themselves has come to fix what's broken. And they're in on it. They love this idea, but eventually some pressure arises in their life. Some hardship comes along. And when the rubber meets the road, they really say, you know what? I don't really trust in this thing all that much. I don't really believe that the life of Jesus is true, lasting life. Maybe it's a political party that conflicts with the way of Jesus, right? Maybe when Jesus really butts up against their political beliefs, they're like, you know what? I kind of like my political beliefs, so I'm just going to camp out here. I'm going to stay here. Maybe they're publicly ridiculed or persecuted for being a Christian. And they realize, you know what? I don't want that on my resume, so I'm just going to kind of put my Christianity to the side. Eventually, what happens over time is that through pressure, these people end up not calling themselves Christians, being people who are willing to disregard it. Or if they put it on their name, they'll always put these caveats with it. If you look at their lives, they aren't really under times of great pressure and difficulty following Jesus meaningfully. You can always tell if people have truly, deeply received Jesus based on how they react in the hardest circumstances in their life. What do they do when grief comes? What do they do when persecution comes? What do they do when a choice to be a Christian might mean they lose something in the world? Might mean they give up everything in the world. The Iranian Christians and the Chinese Christians right now in the world are great examples of this. They have given up everything to follow Jesus. There's a great quote from uh, the good Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that summarizes this well. He says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. That's how you can tell if this seed has really gotten into good soil or if it's really just rocky ground. When things get tough, the kingdom of God is calling us to true life, to move the rocks out of the way. So to this person, Jesus says, do you have ears? Are you listening? There's a third person here. This is the seed cast into thorny ground. These are the sorts of people who receive Jesus into their lives, but eventually other priorities start to take over. You notice the plant starts to grow, but other stuff is growing with it. 
The thorns are in the soil as well. Jesus isn't the only priority. And eventually, little by little, the priorities of the kingdom get outweighed by the priorities of the world in these people. So generosity and self-sacrifice, love and justice, commitment to God, contentment in the Lord, those things fall away and worldly security takes their place. We see this a lot in our own culture, right? Christians who call themselves Christians by name, but if you look at their lives, they don't show a lot of kingdom priorities. They don't give themselves away. You can always tell if a seed has landed in thorny ground based on how people spend their time, energy, and money. Are they really prioritizing the kingdom in every part of their lives? Is that really happening for them? They might say they like the idea of Jesus' forgiveness and love, but worldly comfort ends up being the main priority. They make their decisions based on that. They move to neighborhoods with people they like. They take the next job that is better money-wise for them, even if it's not better kingdom-wise for them. All of those decisions are based on worldly priorities. And to that person, Jesus asks, do you have ears? Are you listening? And finally, the fourth person, the good soil. These are the people whose trust in Jesus goes beyond circumstances. Notice the word Jesus uses to describe them. He calls them endurant. That's because their faith has lasted through all of these trials and circumstances. Their faith faith has endured and persevered in their lives through everything they've gone through. They're the ones that show loving God and loving others is the most important thing in their life because they've done it through the hardest circumstances. They're the people who have had ears and actually heard. They're the people who have authentically listened to Jesus, who recognize him and incorporate a trust of him into everything they do. And notice what happens for these people. The plant doesn't get choked out. What's it do? Produces fruit. A hundredfold, he says. In the other gospels, he says 30, 60, a hundredfold when he tells this story, which, by the way, it's not about the number. He's not saying that a certain number will justify the reception of Jesus. He's saying whatever the number is, there will be fruit. Stuff is going to happen in your life. Good, restorative work. The kingdom of heaven is going to arrive with redemption and restoration when you choose to trust Jesus. And if you want evidence of of this, look at somebody who's faithfully followed Jesus for like 60 years. Have a conversation with them. Look at the fruit in their lives. Look at their character. Look at how they've been formed. We have some of those people in our community right now. Take some time and hear their story. You will see fruit of restored relationships. You will see fruit of broken addictions. You will see fruit of peace and justice. You will see fruit of conquered sin. You will see fruit of hospitality and generosity. You will see fruit of patience and kindness. You will see fruit of the Spirit in their lives. The redemption and restoration of all things is found in the person of Jesus and it is shown in the people who hear him and listen to him. So do we have ears? Are we really listening? Because Jesus is inviting us. Midtown Presbyterian Church, Jesus is inviting us to consider our response to him. Are we receiving him in our lives? Do we have ears that are hearing his calling? Ears to hear the things we might need to give up. Ears to hear the things uh, we might need to change in our spending habits. Ears to hear the ways we might serve and love those who are in need here and outside of this community. And so as we start this year together here at this church, we're given an opportunity to answer this question. Every day, every week, 
every month. It's not just about a New Year's resolution, right? It's about committing myself to being a certain way, to receiving Jesus, to really hearing his message. We've heard this story. We've been invited to receive him. And now there's just one question. Do we have ears? Are we really listening? Let's pray, friends.